Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present. Brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, www.ihconvention.com. The following sermon was preached back in 1992 by H.E. Schmuel. It's titled, Vision for the Future. You're going to enjoy what you're about to hear. Oh, it's always a privilege to be here. And it's always a privilege to be with you. These are my people. These are the people that did rock my spiritual cradle. These are the people that did watch over me while I sought to find the way. These are the people that pointed me to the Savior first and to the way of holiness a short while later. They, these are the people that have put up with my idiosyncrasies, the people that have understood me when I've been misunderstood, the people that thought they saw light when I wasn't sure myself whether it was light or not. And I love and appreciate the holiness movement. This conservative crowd that has endeavored to hold high the torch of Bible holiness without any additions or without any subtractions. I am not going to preach a message as such today, but I just want to, I just want to, We hope all, are all systems go? These are problems Paul never had. That is the Apostle Paul. Uh, he never had to be switched on and switched off. And, uh, but I do. But I thank God for uh, the holiness way. And I thank God for the great host of leaders that have gone before us. I was reminiscing in my room while in prayer. I was thinking about that great cloud of witnesses that no doubt are here this morning. I'm thinking about those spiritual patriarchs that were just as human as we and yet who loved God with all their heart and set out on a brisk march toward the city and never slacked their pace or turn to the right hand or to the left. I think of our great leaders like H. Robb, French, and Dale Yoakum, and Glenn Griffith, and R.G. Flexen, and George Straub, and just a whole troop of them go through my minds, including H.C. Uh, Van Warmer, and T.A. Robertson, and E.W. Roy, who is our treasure and our host for many years. I thank God for them. I have not made my pledge to them. I made a pledge to Christ long ago. I think that's why you're here. Somewhere down the line, you too made a pledge. Sometime you too bowed the knee. 
It was under Brother Moto. I, I missed you here on this front seat, but I'm so glad to see you're here. But I, uh, I bowed the knee on Stoneboro Campground. One night near the midnight hour, the moon was coming through the leaves of the lovely beech trees. And I was kneeling by a fallen log. And I made some promises to God. Somewhere you made some promises to God, didn't you? The old Methodist hymn writer said, There is a spot to me more dear than earthly veil or fountain, a spot for which affection's tear springs grateful from its fountain. Tis not where kindred souls abound, though that is almost heaven, but where I first my Savior found and felt my sins forgiven. Hard was my toil to reach the shore, long tossed upon the ocean. Above me was the thunder's roar, beneath was the wave's commotion. Darkly the pall of night was thrown around me, faint with terror. How did my groan ascend to God for all my years of air, fainting and panting as for breath? I knew not help was near me. I cried, Lord! Save me from death, immortal Jesus, hear me. And Mark Russell, quick as thought, I felt in mine. My Savior stood before me. His brightness round me shine. I shouted, glory, glory. Amen. You made up Chris somewhere, did you not? Somewhere you made God some promises and some pledges. They still hold good today. I'm not looking for another way. I'm not looking for uh, another, uh, another manner of worship. I'm not looking for another lifestyle. I thank God for this old-fashioned holiness way. Amen. Time changes things. Time changes people. Time changes us all. Father, time comes along and he takes some things away from us like alacrity and skills and expertise. And in its place he gives aches and pains and grunts and groans and somebody hands you a bottle of Hadacol or something or other to keep you going. But uh, change and decay and all around I see, but O oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. And our theme in the beginning was Jesus. Our theme today is Jesus. The Bible is a book of warning, and we need to be warned in this day. And I thank God for the voices of warning, some in our movement and some outside our movement are sounding a trumpet call. Sometime a friend of mine came to my office and I said, Brother uh, Smool, what's going to be your response to this? And what's going to be your response uh, to the other thing? And you know that uh, some of the charges that are being made. And I said, I'm, I'm not at war with anyone but the devil. I'm not attacking anybody. I'm not climbing on anybody's frame. If anybody can show us a better way, welcome. If anybody can see revival in a different way, and 
and uh, have more and greater blessing, I say, welcome. I say, let me learn from you. Let me find out how you do it. Let me learn your secret. Let me kneel at your feet. Let me bow before you. Let me bend my ear in your direction. I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers. I, I'm not satisfied with, uh, with what we are. And my heart is hungering for what we ought to be under God and by his grace. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here at this morning time of fasting and prayer. No, Moses understood the danger in his day, and he said, Beware, lest when you come into the land and you enter into houses you built not, and you take over vineyards that you did not plant, beware lest your heart be lifted up and you deny the Lord who bought you. Paul, uh, when he was greeting the elders for the last time, and he embraced them with warm affection, and uh, they wept as they embraced, and he says, I know that after my departure, grievous wolves shall come in and destroy the flock of God. And so words of warning to the flock are always in order. Jesus himself greeted that same church in, in the Laodicean epistle. The letter goes out from the head of the church, Christ, to the ministers of the church, and at that time, Jesus is saying, I know thy works, and I know that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would that thou art hot or cold. And so even the church at Ephesus eventually cooled off and fell by the wayside. Uh, Luther, in the Reformation, things were seemed to be started well, but eventually there were those who would lead uh, the Reformation astray, and West Luther had to come out uh, from uh, from hiding and expose himself and issue the challenge back to the centrality of Christ and the cross. Wesley had his own concerns about things not going the way he would like to see them go. He expressed that fear again and again. And as our uh, dear brother Troughton mentioned last night in that most excellent message, that Wesley had a lot to say about money. He wasn't raising an offering, by the way. He was warning the people that now since you're converted and now since you are redeemed and you're going to be going to work and you're going to be making money, you're going to become wealthy. And with wealth comes corruption. With affluence comes the danger of drifting from the way. And before John Wesley was laid away, the seeds of, of drift in his own church, which he fathered and founded, were quite evident. And so there's nothing in the way of a resolution, there's nothing in the way of a committee of a hundred that Wesley established that can really guarantee anything. Only as Dr. Daniel Steele put it, the Holy Ghost is the conservator of orthodoxy. Not another resolution or not another board. We don't need any more surveillance uh, equipment. We don't need anything new. We just need to return to God periodically. Some schools seek to avoid the dangers of modernism by each year getting the members of the faculty to sign a statement of intent that they will stand by the doctrines and stand by the way. And despite all of those efforts, denominations and schools still drift from their original purpose. It's not in my power or anyone else's power here or any board or any committee to set up a, a series of resolutions or a, a series of standards and guarantee that we will never fade away. 
Someone came to me a number of years ago and said, Smool, what kind of a guarantee can you give us that we're, you're going, the convention's going to continue the way it always has continued? Uh, and he said, if I really knew that you are really going to do this, I probably would have some money for the convention and its work. And I said to him, I said, sir, we, we can always use whatever money comes in to pay our bills. But I said, I cannot guarantee you anything, and nobody else can guarantee you anything. Your church can't guarantee it. Your bishops and your superintendents cannot guarantee it. I said, the only guarantee I know, the nearest thing to a guarantee, is to look out the finest and the best of young men and women who seem to be dedicated to high and holy things, and then... Uh, then uh, anoint them in this line of succession, whatever it may be. And there's no guarantee of any kind. We're not promising you anything except that as long as I live, I tell you this is the way I long have sought. This is the way my heart has been treading. This is the way my soul has been carrying me on. And I sense in Paul Pierpoint and Dan Stetler and Leonard Sankey and other men of, of uh, lesser years, I sense in them the same hunger and the panting after the water brook. I remember visiting with Leslie Wilcox on what proved to be his deathbed. That dear soldier of the cross, gaunt and thin, with very, his very bony hands and a bony arm, they were struggling to keep his life. Standing by his bedside for, on one of several occasions that I visited him, we talked a little bit about preaching, for his mind was as clear as a bell. And I talked a little bit about Oh, Harold, what have you been saying? And I tried to tell him what I've been preaching. And I said, well, Brother Wilcox, I've been thinking about time. Uh, time uh, as seen by the Jews and time as viewed by the Greeks. Uh, the, uh, the Greeks saw time as cyclical. That is, that time went in a big circle and just went round and round. And every 25 years or 50 years or 100 years, a certain cycle would take place. And we have people that think that's the way revival happens. It goes in cycles and there's nothing we can do about it. Then I said, you know, Brother Wilcox, there was the Jews that from the beginning they had, uh, they had what was known as the linear view, the straight line view. And in their view, somewhere down the line was coming a Messiah, and they looked for the Messiah to come. And no matter what happened to them nationally, no matter if they went to in the wilderness, if they were in Egypt for 400 years, if they were under Babylonian oppression, no matter where they were at, there were those who pointed, yes, but were looking for the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And so they were people, not only with a straight line, but they were people that had a hope, and their hope was in the Messiah. Sure, some of them missed the way, but some horny-handed fisherman uh, recognized him, and the most unlearned of all, no doubt, said, we believe and we are sure thou art the Christ, thou art the Son of the living God. Amen. They were his disciples. Jesus was somewhat even disappointed in them. There came those days of darkness that we have just been celebrating through this Lenten period when uh, the darkness hung over Mount Calvary and out of that darkness came a voice that cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they all forsook him and fled and stayed a considerable distance away. Thomas doubted him, Judas betrayed him, 
Of course, and Peter denied him. But he built on people that came back. He built on people and gave them for granted forgiveness and gave them another assignment. Yes, even the disciples disappointed Jesus. But Peter never disappointed again. Peter went on to Pentecost, and Peter, according to tradition tells us, died with his feet in the air and his head toward the ground because, oh yes, the executioner says, all you got to do is what you did one other time, deny you know him, deny you ever heard of him, just curse his name. But Peter would not deny, he knew him too well and denied him not. And so we can go through Luther, and we can go through Wesley, and we can come down to the present time, and we are once again offering no guarantee. The only pledge we give, the only pledge I give, I can't pledge for anyone else, but I can tell you, as I've told you many times, that I give the best I have to Jesus Christ. I'm not giving it to the convention. I'm giving, I have given all my days to him. It's been number one and number two. The work of the convention is only an expression of my love and devotion to Jesus Christ. It is not a denomination because we willed in the beginning that it would never become a denomination. This convention is not anti-denominational. It is interchurch. That is, it's a relationship of churches and people that love God and stand by Bible holiness. That's all. That's what it's all about. And that's where we stood 40 years ago, and that's where we stand today. And so I would just like to say something here this morning, and I don't wish to be long because I want to close uh, in a certain way around this altar. But I have a few notes I made here, voices from yesterday, and I'd just like to read a few of those. Uh, J.R. Mitchell, the acting editor of the convention herald in this earliest moment said, a movement so spon spontaneous must meet some deep need among the people of God. Men and women did not take time out of their busy lives to travel long distances at considerable expense to come. It was not, they were not coming for a matter of religious entertainment. Rather, the emphasis is on prayer and on fasting. That was so then, that is so to this day. It was on search, heart searching and inward yearning. There was a deep intuition in the souls of the people that came from various denominations and independent groups to join hands for a spiritual awakening. The enthusiastic response to the convention reveals the fact there's a great hunger among the people of God for such a move as this. It was true 40 years ago. The hunger is still here today. Amen. He says, IHC is trying to recapture something of the divine fire and mission that brought the holiness groups into existence. Our crisis is not organizational. Our crisis is spiritual. We can only find remedy by spiritual powers. Amen. Somehow, uh, God somehow seems to bless those who are have a loyalty above and beyond their own religious group, who rise above to a higher loyalty to the church of the firstborn. Here is discovered the true pattern of spiritual unity, the oneness born of supreme love for the divine head. The spirit's movings know no boundaries and yield to no partisan spirit. Jesus is interdenominational and belongs to all the people. Amen. I hurry on. I want to give just a quote or two from T.M. Anderson. T.M. Anderson writes, 
He says, I am deeply impressed with the spirit of devotion and the sincere praise evidenced by the preachers and the people who have come for the specific purpose of worshiping God. I don't think many of you people understand how T.M. Anderson abhorred uh, just promotion, 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 and the continual, continual uh, promotion of a certain thing. He says here, for sometimes a few devout persons have felt the imperative need for such a gathering of God's people. I frankly admit that my soul has longed to be in such a convention where the entire time is used to preach and pray and praise the Lord. I long to hear the message that emphasized the character of holiness and exalts the cleansing power of Christ. He'd have been blessed by the message last night and the one this morning, to say the least. I have longed to meet with people who sincerely desire to be enlightened and edified rather than entertained. It did my soul good to get away from plans and programs and find rest and reward in seeking the face of God and in worshiping his with his holy people. God willing, I purpose to attend such a convention every year and enjoy the comfort and consolation that comes from the presence of Christ. Well, he's in a bigger and a better convention now. A forward movement without revival at its center is a delusion. We may have clamor without conviction. We may have plans without prayer, but we cannot have revival and true evangelism without brokenness and intercession. Intercessory prayer, unquestioned obedience and faith in God brings revival. The present sickness in the holiness movement is unto death unless we are revived. You can say amen if you want to. The solution will not come from neat little prescriptions concocted by denominational pill pushers, nor will it be compounded in educational dispensaries and seminars. The radical x-ray machine of the Pharisees will never find the cause of the deadly flux. The way to health and for holiness without revival cannot be legislated by liberal doctors or their manuals or by Pharisees and their pamphlets. H. Rob French has a word for us, and H. Rob French was the, the mainspring, the, the fountain for the convention movement. The new life, he says, the heart is changed, it's cleansed. How can one be holy on the inside and be sexy on the outside? It's impossible to be pure on the inside, have holiness on the inside, and Hollywood on the outside. Can't you hear the old prophet say it? <laughs> Amen. And what he said then holds good today. Amen. We still stand by the same way. Amen. Hollywood is not our way. God's way is the way of holiness, the way of real separation from the world. Amen. Loving God with all our heart and our neighbors ourselves is a high standard. George Mueller died to position and praise and criticism of the people. To please God was his chief concern. His div divisions will cease and bitterness will be gone and a sweet, beautiful harmony will exist among the children of God. I don't know of anyone who is a greater apostle of, of unity and oneness in the spirit than H. Rob French. The pronouncements he used to make at Hope Sound, he'd rather see it turned in to see Hope Sound become a dance uh, pavilion, rather see the tabernacle uh, and those places barred up or locked up than to have dissension and bitterness and strife going on on the campground. 
my friend, that's how he felt about this matter of splitting and splintering and dividing his message on the people of God loving God with all their heart and loving one another was preeminent in him. Our first love, our first loyalty is to God, yes, even above our father and our mother. And then his final word, looking for the Lord and the rapture, to go up in the rapture and to be present at the marriage supper of the Lamb is my burning passion. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like Uncle Rob? My burning passion. He said he had two stars. One was revival and the other was the rapture. And uh, some of us have heard him say he expected to go up in the rapture. He lived to be about 93 years of old of age. He didn't make the rapture, but I believe he's with the Lord. And I think if our eyes of faith could take a look today, I wouldn't doubt Rob French and Glenn Griffith and some others are in that cloud of witnesses that are urging us to stay to the good path and to the good way. Amen? Amen. They are, they are our spiritual mentors. As I looked at the, as I was reviewing that, I came across a line by Dale Yoakum. I miss Dale Yoakum. I miss S.E. Herrick. I used to hear Brother French say, I'm a lonely, I'm a lonely man. I didn't really know all it meant then. I think I know more now. I'd like to read what Dale Yoakum had to say. This is his word of warning. If he were here today, I believe Dale Yoakum would have everybody's attention and everybody's ear. He was a master preacher. Worldliness is a spirit of temper. It is not so much an act as an attitude. It's a pose, a posture. It's a certain disposition toward God. It's a certain inclination, a certain aspect of the soul. Worldliness is life without heavenly calling, life without ideals, without heights. Worldliness recognizes nothing of the high calling of God. Worldliness has no hill country. Worldliness is horizontal. Worldliness has nothing of the, of the vertical in it. It has ambition, but it has no holy aspirations. It is a motto. Its motto is success, not holiness. It's always saying onward, never upward and downward. A worldly man or a worldly woman is a man or a woman who never says, I will lift up mine eyes to the hill. Surely these are no more, these are no more, there is no more deadly brand of worldliness than the spirit which wraps itself around with a cloak of ease and fleshly contentment while multitudes perish for the help they could give. Here is a test of our worldliness versus our spirituality. How much constraint attaches to our physical strength and our material assets that they may be channeled into the effort to bring souls to everlasting life. Can anything of this world's good, be it fine furniture or gorgeous clothing or palatial residence or a big bank account, not to mention the carnal excess of jeweled ornaments, even faintly compare with souls brought from darkness to his marvelous light? Really? Are we living for this world or the next one? Are we setting our highest estimate on material values or on spiritual? Does the moral the mortal body rank higher with us than the immortal spirit. What is it that occupies our highest desires, our most serious planning, our most fervent prayers? Are we laboring to save souls or just our own body? For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much 
be required. I, Dale Yoakum's eloquent voice and powerful spirit, speaks to us once again through these simple lines and this simple ministry and message. Are you weary? Would you like to hear at least a, just a little more from another one? S.D. Heron has something to say to us for our day. He wasn't the prolific writer, but he was a profound thinker. S.D. Heron was a great thinker. He was a think. He lives today. He, more accurately, he exists today. I owe much to these men. I don't have time to read all that Heron has to say, but he's exhorting us to the narrow way. He is telling us that there are two ways, two ways, the broad way and the narrow way. That there are two paths, Calvinism and Wesleyanism or, or Bible holiness. And even in the holiness movement, he says, strange to say, there's still a voice that calls for a choice, even within the holiness movement. Even there, the soul is confronted by two ways, two groups, two emphasis, two schools of thought. The lines are sharply and clearly drawn. Neutrality is impossible. And this was true when Brother Heron wrote this, and it's still true today. Amen. You and I are still choosing. If you go away to a hole in the school, you make your choice as to what kind of a crowd you're going to hang around. If you go to a camp meeting, go to anybody's camp meeting, anybody's camp meeting you wish to mention, on that campground you have to make your own choice. Choose I must and soon must choose holiness or heaven lose. I read a little bit farther here. If I can, I'm having my eye problems. What is said is not meant as an individual or blanket indictment on those who may differ from my viewpoint. But he says, this is the result of my experience and observation and my reflection. I may hasten to add that there are good people and some not so good in both groups. There are wrong attitudes and a wrong spirit manifested on both sides. And S.D. Heron was a man who was always careful about attitudes. He says, the first area of difference we'll note is in that of preaching. And I haven't got time to read this. The second is in the area of Christian experience. And he said, here one group will emphasize repentance that involves confession of sin and restitution and real praying through to a definite witness of the Spirit. On the other side, there's a tendency to adopt the Calvinistic approach of accepting Christ and a shallow, take it by faith, reasoning, uh, seekers into a profession holiness. There are not many marks of deep death to sin and to sell. A lot of talk about a shallow way, shallow consecration, but not a break with the world, not a crucifixion of carnality, not bringing about a definite, clear witness of the Spirit. Then he goes on to say there's a difference in these ways in promotion, there's a difference in these ways in Christian ethics. One group takes a, a strong stand 
against uh, religious movies and sporting events and uh, public uh, swimming and television others are uh, and recognizes these evils there's a trend to put to put it mild on the other part to accept them and to go a lesser way and so we need to recognize that these two these two ways are in our movement which of these ways which group which teaching will you tend to lead and tend to go the rocks of worldliness have wrecked so many churches and government. Is there no danger today from the world? Do you see the trend toward the world in either of these ways? Do you see that at all? In which group do you see or see the seeds of modernism? Which group will come near to accepting a watered-down doctrine of holiness? Into which group could Calvinistic teachers and preachers find easier access? If the churches should ever repudiate, though only by silence, the doctrine of holiness, which group would you think would be most likely to tend in that direction? Which seems to incline more toward deep spirituality characterized by confession and Holy Ghost demonstration and the deep experiences of regeneration. Which of these ways? The direction, my dear friend, is the same. The IHC has to make up its mind as to where we're going. Right here in this crowd today, we're going to come to this altar after the noon hour in prayer and confession and obedience. The direction of the IH convention is the same now as it was 40 years ago. There seems to be some people who know more about the convention than the men and the women that were there when the convention started. We know exactly where it started. The emphasis then was on Convent was on revival, renewal, and refiring. It was then, and now the emphasis is still the same. These great leaders are remembered by their books and their tapes and their schools and their associations and the denominations they started. We hear their voices of encouragement from the great cloud of witnesses. They call us forward. They call us onward. They call us uh, to a deeper walk with God. They call us to the old-fashioned way of second blessing holiness. It's time we left the lowlands. If you've been living there, it's time you left the lowlands and headed up the hill, determined not to stop until we have a fresh drink from the crystal fountain. Amen. We must not settle for the brackish waters and the swampland. We must climb until we have a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. The words of the Greeks when they said, Sir, we would see Jesus must be our cry in this day as well. Christ is not only to have preeminent, it must be our theme uh, banner, Brother Gale, but we must see Jesus in a fresh way. Harold Spool, who stands before you today, comes acknowledging, I seek a fresh revelation of the Christ of God. If we don't have a fresh revelation, if we don't have renewal, if we do not have revival, we lose our, our grip on our, we lose our grip on our convictions. We loosen our grasp on things that we have held fir firmly. Little by little, things begin to slip away from us. And they will slip though we shout and though we say, don't let them go. There is no man, there is no mortal that can hold these things together. It takes God in your heart. If you don't have a personal encounter with God in this meeting, it'll mean absolutely nothing at all. Amen. 
It's not enough for you to intellectually say, here I stand. Your heart must be there. Your entire being must be there. It's not enough for an intellectual acceptance and doctrinally and ethically set aside certain ideals and standards and say, that's where I stand. The disposition, the attitude you manifest can be as near hell as anything else in all the world. We need to come before God with humbleness and, and brokenness of heart and mind and spirit. Some time ago, I wrote a letter uh, to a, a, a gentleman. And in that letter, quite a lengthy letter, I quoted, uh, I quoted a section from Wesley. Uh, those who think we are, we are uh, straying away need to take a look. John Wesley on the 16th of June in 1739, a little one year after he was converted and perhaps, uh, and some think sanctified. But here's what he said. We came to humble ourselves before God and own that he had justly withdrawn his spirit from us for our manifold unfaithfulness. We acknowledge having grieved him by our divisions and above all by blaspheming his work among us, imputing it either to nature or to the force of the imagination or to animal spirits or either to delusion of the devil. In that hour, in that hour of confession, in that hour of humbling ourselves before God, we found God with us as at the first. Some fell prostrate upon the ground. Others burst out with one consent into loud praises of thanksgiving. And many openly testified there had, there, there had not been no such day since the 1st of January, 1779. And that reference is to another time of brokenness and humbling and confessing before God. My friend, we just dare not move away. To this man will I look, even to him that is of a broken and a contrite spirit. I am the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. To this man will I look, even to he that is of a, of a broken and a contrite heart. And so it goes over and over again. Amen. When David was in his deep trouble, having sinned against God, he, he didn't return to the sacrifice. He said, Oh God, a broken and a contrite heart thou wilt not despise. And that first principle brought me into the kingdom. And that first principle brought, kept me in the kingdom. And that first principle keeps me in the kingdom today. And when you lose a broken and a contrite heart, you have lost the essence of New Testament salvation and old time religion. When you get hard and cold and crusty and metallic and judgmental and everybody's in or out according to your notions and pattern, my friend, you're farther removed from God than you have any idea. The man who is nearest to God is the man who has a broken a broken heart and a broken spirit. Amen. And I said in some correspondent recently, I don't know of any preacher and I don't know of any group of people that could not be benefited by bending the knee and bending low before God as Wesley and others have across the years. Charles G. Finney, who found a lull in his ministry, took a trip, a lengthy trip. They said he needed a vacation. And while he was on that vacation, he entered into a period of about 10 days of fasting and prayer. And while he was on the ship in the midst of the Mediterranean, humbling his soul before God, the Holy Ghost fell upon Finney in a new and fresh way. He, did, he came back to America to see revival started, but basically he wrote a book on lectures on revival. God used his influence so that 20 years following his ministry, they were more fruitful than the years of dynamic and dramatic results across uh, New York State and other parts of the country. 
the book on revival and wherever the people, wherever the people, wherever the preachers preached on humbling and brokenness and, and confession of sin and turning their way to God and going back to God, they had revivals and revivals broke out across the country. Not one more statistic that won't hurt a bit, and that is they could account for more of Charles G. Finney's converts 20 years after the revival than they could any other. Eighty, over 80% 80 of, West, uh, of Finney's converts stood firm 20 years after the meeting. Friend, that has to tell us all something. Amen. Oh, for a Pentecost. Oh, for a going down before God. That's my prayer, and that's the theme of this fast and prayer service. We have 11 minutes to closing time, and I know that what we're about, what I'm about to ask you to do will really have no special significance, and yet in a way I think it will or I would not be doing it. But I, as a boy in Faulkner, New York, newly saved, trying to find God's way in my life, the Bible became very precious to me. Four o'clock in the morning would find me, not occasionally, but morning after morning, going to the church several blocks away to read and to pray and to turn on the little gas stove and wait before God as a teenager before I started the day. But a companion with me on that, always on that trip, was not only my Bible, but was the old Wesleyan hymn book. I learned many hymns from that. I can't play a piano, but I can still peck them out on the piano, one finger, you know, so I at least get the melody. I got the melodies of those old hymns. And one of my most favorite, probably, in some ways, a spiritual theme song, was a song that you all know that I want us to sing this morning in a few minutes. Mark Russell knows it. I'll take the narrow way with a resolute few who dare to go through. We'll probably sing a couple verses this morning. You probably won't know the verses. I think the Stettlers were free Methodists way back in the dark ages before Dan was probably born. I know Paul Pierpoint goes way back there likewise. Sankey's an old Alleghenian with me. But you know, friend, it's more than a sentiment. It's been the scent of my soul. I've been called all kinds of compromisers and things, but the direction of my life has never changed. It's still the narrow way. And I'd like to have my wife come up here this morning. And I'd like those of us that are going to take this narrow way, I'd like to have us gather around this front. This isn't the morning prayer service. If you are for the narrow way, I wish you'd come. Lois, this is the only order I've ever issued in my whole life. She'd say, I'm not dressed properly. I'm not prepared. I've got this old sweater on. The narrow way pursuit. I'd like to ask you boys to sing a couple of other verses. I want to know this with me. 
stood by me through thick and thin. Let's sing, we'll sing that chorus, and then we'll come to whatever verses you sing, whatever verse you know. All right? I'll take the one more time. Those of you who will take just a few minutes, gather up around here. This is our last time singing together. Come down here and start the closing prayer together. I'll take my 
Amen. If you will come, if you'll really take the way, if you really mean it in your heart, where Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. Keep passing it on.